0: This episode is sponsored by the Zoological Lighting Institute.
1: The Zoological Lighting Institute funds the sciences of light and life for the arts, for animal welfare, and for wildlife conservation.
0: Recognizing that natural light is a central aspect of animal health and ecological function, the Zoological Lighting Institute promotes understanding by including scientific and artistic perspectives in conversations about light so that proper and sustainable approaches to care and development can be taken by communities around the globe.
1: ZLI understands that natural light is a key element of wildlife habitat. Artificial light at night and other modifications to the luminous environment such as glass and asphalt have radical implications for the physiology, sensory ecology, and integrative biology of animals and their roles within ecosystems. ZLI promotes scientific research to improve understanding as to what artificial changes mean for animals and the human communities that depend on them.
0: Find out how you might support ZLI's work at ZLI.org by participating in, sponsoring, or learning through its programs today.
1: Now on to the show.
0: In the final stretch across the Pacific Ocean, pilots flying from Asia to Los Angeles will see a dim glow on the horizon from the city's abundant lights. According to the International Dark Sky Association, the lights are visible from more than 200 miles away.
1: The glow doesn't emanate from a single source. It's the combination of all the car headlights, neon signs, street lamps, theater marquees, Christmas decorations, and billboards across the city.
0: Scientists call it sky glow, and over the last century it has become much, much more intense. You can find it over pretty much any human settlement on the planet and increasingly in remote areas. The Park Service found that the glow from Las Vegas, for example, is visible from eight national parks.
1: Today's guest, Kevin Gaston, estimated in a recent paper that two thirds of the planet's key biodiversity areas lie under artificially lit skies. Kevin is a biologist at the University of Exeter, and a leading researcher on the ecological effects of light pollution. He and others have shown that light pollution is bad for humans and bad for other organisms.
0: The world has been electrified for only 150 years, a blink in geologic time. Everything alive today evolved under light coming solely from the sun, the moon, and the stars. Plants, animals, and even microbes use day-to-day and seasonal changes in sunlight to time critical behaviors and to tune their physiologies to exploit opportunities and cope with threats. When we interfere with natural light cues, things can go haywire.
1: Not only is there more light at night now, the spectral characteristics of that light are taking a turn for the worse. New systems are emitting broad-spectrum light that is more harmful to more organisms than was narrow-spectrum light from older technologies.
0: In humans, artificial light at night alters patterns of hormone release, particularly melatonin, which, among other things, synchronizes the biological clocks that keep time in every cell in our bodies. Interfering with those patterns can cause serious problems and may explain, for example, why working the night shift puts you at greater risk for hypertension and coronary heart disease.
1: But direct effects on human health are just the tip of the iceberg. Artificial light also harms species in the wild. You've probably heard about baby turtles doomed by crawling towards artificial lights on the shore rather than towards the moonlit ocean. Extra light midwinter can also trick songbirds into thinking it's spring, leading them to try to reproduce at the wrong time of year.
0: Kevin argues that the impact of artificial light goes far beyond these one-off examples. He calls it a major systemic problem akin to global warming.
2: That message needs to be much more widely understood, that that artificial lighting and the impacts of artificial lighting are, are not about oddities, they're not about... I mean, of course, they have implications for all sorts of peculiar bits of biology. But actually, we, we are, are living in in a world which is very, very strongly structured now in most places by artificial lighting and and that, if we go back to that notion that that light and temperature are fundamental structures of biology, then we really are we really are messing with the roots, if you like, of, of the environment of a very high proportion of life.
1: Right now, the situation is pretty bad. LED bulbs are bringing down the cost of new lighting, and many communities, and even whole countries, are responding by putting up lots of new lighting systems. The good news is that reducing light pollution is, in theory, as easy as flipping a switch.
0: On this episode of Big Biology, we talk with Kevin about the growing problem of light pollution its effects on human and ecosystem health, and why we should think about light pollution as an urgent global problem. We'll also talk about what governments and NGOs can do to reduce light pollution and what actions you yourself can take that are most effective.
1: I'm Marty Martin. And I'm Art Woods. And this is Big Biology.
0: To start, just by telling you a, a quick little story about um, my my childhood. I grew up in a, a fairly rural part of Oklahoma, uh, which is not not rural now, but it was in the 1970s and 80s when I was I was growing up. And my father was in, into the stars. He spent a lot of time looking at the stars and the moon. We ended up building a, a large telescope together uh, and using it on starry nights to look at moons of Jupiter and the craters on the moon, that kind of stuff. And I have, I have this sort of vision of what uh, a really starry night looks like. And I've seen that not nearly as much since then. It's, it's a feels like a very distant memory. And even though I live now in, in Montana, which also is a very uh, sparsely populated state, uh, I just don't see the stars like I used to. So, so what what's happened over that time?
2: And of course, you share that with a very high proportion of the global population. Who, who have never seen a natural night sky um, and to see one that you knew was genuinely lacking in human influence, you're going to have to go a long way. <laughs> um, um, to a first approximation, nowhere in Europe, for example, could you actually see in, in the strict technical terms of, you know, is there a, is there a human light signal? Um, you couldn't see a natural sky. Um, so what we've been doing for I don't know hundred years or so is is injecting increasingly large amounts of artificial lighting into the environment. Um, there's a there's an estimate that says that um since the end of the the eighteen hundreds, um, mm. a a typical Englishman's light experience has gone up 6,000 fold. 6,000 fold, wow. So we really a have lot of extra dramatically changed the, the nighttime environment, really.
0: So, so is there any place that you go on Earth today where you feel like you're seeing untouched skies at, at night?
2: Increasingly not, I mean, I did spend time in the southern oceans where actually that that would have been true then, um, but um, much of my travels now, and I do travel a lot actually it 's increasingly hard to find places which which have genuinely um, genuinely naturally dark skies, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. hence part of the the issue which i 'm sure we'll move on to is you know what we do about those places which do still retain that and how significant they might become.
1: So there's a a diversity of light pollution and I think the one we're we're sort of talking around involves a lot of sky glow but in general before we get into the details the biological implications of light pollution it might be nice to sort of lay out the varieties so we're grounded as we we go into the the various effects that we're starting to detect.
2: So fundamentally you've got two kinds of artificial lighting or two um, so you've got what we would all recognize as kind of the the direct emissions so you stand under the street light you walk further away from the street light and you're experiencing um those those emissions that are coming pretty much directly from the source um, there might be a bit of scattering around from uh, from buildings and vegetation and so forth but actually they're they're very easily traceable to that particular source and that's very ex- very extensive, but actually in a sense at the same time quite localized and then you 've got sky glow, which is basically when those light emissions bounce into the atmosphere, get scattered around on particles um, and and spread much much more widely and so the overall extent of sky glow is is vastly greater. Um, than the direct emissions and is is the classic sky brightening that you see over over a city, if you stand at some distance from that city. Um, but as our ability to measure these things has improved, we're, we're coming to recognise that that sky glow is extending over truly huge distances. So tens, hundreds of kilometres from an urban source, you are still picking up the sky glow that originates from that source. So what that means is that the footprint of sky glow is truly a, a, enormous, um, and particularly that's really significant. Given that when you talk about artificial light at night, most people think in terms of the street lights and the, and the the direct emissions that they experience.
1: Mm-hmm. And is it is it even possible to sort of point to one form? as more troublesome biologically than another or do we not yet have the tools and the resolution to be able to be that specific?
2: I think one could argue it's, it's a bit too early to answer that question so we know that direct emissions have a huge array of biological influences we su- strongly suspect that the same is true of sky glow but that's really not been nailed down definitively at this point I mean it's clear that it is attaining levels and likely to interfere with a number of clear biological processes but the experiments are tough to do Um, so
0: we we want to spend some significant time on those biological effects Uh, but but before we do i want to just also ask about uh, how you measure these things so i know you and your group have Worked some with satellite measurements, looking looking down on the Earth's surface. Do you also have instruments that you're, you know, pointing at the night sky to measure sky glow directly from the ground?
2: So- yeah. So, so we go from both the very localized scale to to the to the very big geographic scales. So, on the one hand, yes, <clears throat> we walk around with uh, with meters that are either measuring sky glow or measuring the emissions themselves. Um, both, and and what's key here is that we're measuring intensities but also spectra um and, and we'll we'll come on to why color is is really important in in all this i'm sure um and then we're if if we want to understand the broad spread of these things then we we have to look for remote data rather than we can't measure local stuff everywhere um and so we work a lot with satellite data, and we've been doing a lot recently with data from the International Space Station. So
0: let's also put some numbers on the rate of growth in total light that's bathing the Earth. Um, so, so you all have been estimating these these rates of growth over the last what 50 or 100 years. So, so how fast is lighting growing? Uh, where is it growing the fastest? And what are the projections for the next several decades in terms of total growth?
2: Well, what's probably most critical there is what's happened in relatively recent years where we've got quite standardized remote sensing sources, um, and we've been estimating growth rates in intensity, average growth rates globally in intensity and extent of about 2% a year. Um, That has a caveat on it, that we're back to colours again, and the colours have been shifting. So that's likely to be an underestimate of the actual growth rates. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're, but we're in this world where, of of course, you know, two percent seems a small number until you think about inflation rates or interest rates on your yeah. bank account, and then it yeah, I'll take that. It sounds <laughs> like a big number. They to start need. to matter a lot. <laughs> and what's what's interesting there is that. Um, that's not, those rates are not purely about lighting new places. So clearly there is new urbanisation going on and faster in some parts of the world than others and lots of um, development happening. Um, But those rates are are both expansions of about 2% a year, but also increasing intensities in the places that were already lit of about 2% a year. So we've not been happy with how well-lit our well-lit places are. We've been lighting them even more.
1: What's the relationship between the amount of light that comes from a super bright full moon and the sorts of light pollution we've been talking about? I mean, um, you know, this is the one time in the evolutionary past where light is present, you know, of some magnitude. At times where you know it's nothing like the sun, but how does a, a bright full moon compare to the the types of light mo- pollution that we've been talking about?
2: So, uh, intense sky glow is competing with with a full moon, and sky glow is uh, is you know, is a fraction of the intensity of direct emissions stood underneath a streetlight, for example. Um, so, if we said a full moon was you know. lux something like that might be a bit more Um, and stood under a street light you might be easily hitting 20 lux or so and in some cases much more Um, that they're really the the light the artificial light sources are really much much more intense than um, and even the the indirect stuff through sky glow is really competing with those natural signals very effectively.
0: And, and in terms of the color shift, so what's the systematic shift in the
2: spectrum? So g- globally, we've been largely replacing narrow spectrum, particularly streetlights, um, amber streetlights in particular, um, and moving them towards... With, it's been driven by LED technology and the development of LED technology and the availability of that. Um, so moving them towards broad white um, emissions, and the key issue there is that those broad white emissions have a lot more blue in them. And the blue is particularly potent from a biological point of view.
0: So biologically speaking, the number is more than
2: 2%. Yes, yes. And, and probably if if we actually could measure that the... the, uh, the 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 growth that accounted for that spectral shift if you like then we'd we'd find that not just biologically but actually in terms of almost the absolute physics it was more than 2% as well
1: so how much is a um, is light pollution an urban problem i mean in terms of you know its current extent its history and its rates of growth—is it mostly a problem in cities, or where else do we, are we seeing increases? So, so it's, it's always
2: characterized, and I guess in most people's imagination, it's fundamentally an urban problem. Um, but I th- increasingly, I I think that that's a, that's a mistake, and we have to almost kind of recalibrate the way we think about light pollution, in as much as small amounts of lighting in the rural landscapes could matter as much, potentially, as lots of lighting in in urban landscapes. And what you see, if you express these things as per capita emissions, then in the rural landscapes the emissions are much higher than than the urban landscapes. Um, And what we haven't unpicked so far is what does what are the impacts of a few isolated lights in, in other words, quite dark landscape as compared with tens of thousands of lights in an urban landscape? Um, and I think we're almost certainly vastly underestimating the significance of what's happening in rural landscapes.
0: That almost sounds like the kind of thing you could do experiments on. Uh, are there experimental approaches to that that people are taking?
2: I think so far, the state of the art has very much been about about putting lights into previously dark landscapes, so you do your experiment in as darker place as you can possibly find um and um and see what the impacts are in a classic kind of ecological way of this let's let's try and control for absolutely everything else um and let's so let's just get the purest kind of light signal that we can. Which is a bit odd when you think about it, because if actually most m- much of the world doesn't have any natural background lighting in the first place, that actually isn't a particularly good estimate of what's really going on um because you're you're typically experiencing light in a uh, an environment which already has sky glow or um, already has other emissions so i I think the, I think the mature. I think the, the experiments will. I mean, it's a, it's a logical place to start with those, with trying to get the purest signal, if you like. But I think we do, and I think we will move much more to um, experiments asking questions about lighting in landscapes, which are
1: already to some extent lit. So, have you thought? I mean, have you thought about what the most naturalistic, most insightful experimental designs might be? Unlimited funds. I mean, given the difficulty of exactly what you're saying, that there's very few places. If you were to do work in Europe, there's not too many places you have an option where the night sky, at least, is what it like used to be. So, what would the experiments look like?
2: I think you need to do at least paired experiments and possibly more complex designs. We're actually running those the same experiments in in, in urban settings with all the the challenges of other forms of urban lighting and lots of sky blend, as well as in those more rural landscapes. And, uh, and, uh, and I suspect that's where a lot of interest will come in what are the differences between those things. And both in terms of if you use the same source populations, but also if you started to use the local... Uh, is there any local adaptation going on? So in urban settings, are the organisms already in some sense adapted to lighting and actually going to respond more weakly or in different ways? Um, so I think that's where we need to go. Is to And of course, I mean, I guess with unlimited funds, you do it on big gradients rather than just pairwise right, comparisons. Right.
1: And then the difficulty, and that's terrifying to me, because just to put up a bunch of lamps or so in dark environments is often done. That's not cheap. That's not easy. But how in the world do you make the middle of the city dark and natural <laughs> I mean the 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 opposite would just seem almost impossible
2: yeah but but I don't think you're looking to make it dark I think actually you're looking to actually say under those conditions what are the implications I mean I guess in a in a perfectly um in the perfect experiment where your budget was even larger <laughs> than unlimited larger than infinite you know, uh, of course you switch <laughs> half the city's lights off and There's you do this <laughs> dream budget in the distance
0: <laughs> that we all imagine right <laughs>
2: So, yes, you could, you you would, you know, in a a perfectly ideal world, you would want to go there to that length. But I think actually simply uh, doing the comparison, which says I'm going to do my experiment under the urban sky glow and the the complexity of the urban lit environment, as well as in a much darker setting, would be very informative at this point. And no one's done that.
1: Well, let's turn to the biology um, a bit directly. Um, and we've been talking, we've called it light pollution repeatedly now, but I'm not sure that we provided any detailed evidence yet that it's a fair, it's a fair name. Um, I'm, I'm convinced, my lab has worked on light pollution for a little while, so you don't have to convince me, but let's start with human effects. What do we know these forms of, of light, sky glow, or direct effects, or whatever it might be, what do we know about those, those factors and human health?
2: So the big... Ch- well, the first thing I would say is that I actually really don't like the term light <laughs> pollution. <laughs> it's that I I I worry a bit that actually this isn't a pollutant in the same way that many other people would characterise pollutants. Um, but in, in the media and in much public discourse it's it's called light pollution and I think we kind of rather than trying to change the ter- terminology it makes sense to stick with that but actually uh, it's not an entirely comfortable fit. I think light pollution is kind of really interesting and like the introduction of artificial light at night uh, in terms of its evolutionary novelty in a way that is very different from many other things. So Lots of, organi- in evolutionary term or- terms, organisms have seen higher CO2 levels. They've seen higher temperatures. They've seen different patterns of habitat, fragments, seen all that kind of stuff. Actually, playing around with light cycles actually isn't something they've had to deal with. And in the way that artificial light does, is the day longer, can you actually tell where you are in the season anymore and all those things is, and I think that's one of the reasons that I've certainly find the light pollution stuff fascinating is because it's a very different kind of pressure many of the other things that we worry about yeah. in terms of anthropogenic Well That's questions. a
1: great point. I'm glad you mentioned that because I think it's one of those things, the sun goes up and down every day and we just all assume that that's the case and has been the case for 4.6 billion years. That's a pretty strong selective force for life on Earth. And just as you said, I mean, there's almost no species you can point to that hasn't evolved some rhythm at some time scale to cope with that. And now this stimulus that's never been there before is coming in in different forms and different magnitudes and different time than we've seen. So Yeah, I mean, in that sense, it almost feels like it's maybe okay to call it something like pollution. Maybe, maybe again, there's a better word, but it's definitely atypical.
2: Yeah, and I I think that's where the the evolutionary questions get really interesting, because if this is such deep-rooted, the circadian systems, the melatonin cycles are so deep-rooted, then how how easily can you shift them in response to these kinds of um, drivers?
1: So in terms of human effects, I mean, we know that um, our, our smartphones now have this sort of night-night uh, filter. I don't remember the name of it, but um, clearly the, the phone producers think that there's something to, to worry about here. But why? What do we know light to be doing to people?
2: So clearly, I mean, light, light, is, light cycles are as fundamental to people as to, they are to many other organisms. So that's the first thing to say. So so a priori, you would expect if you start messing around with those light cycles, you will have impacts on people. You have impacts on their melatonin cycles, their rhythm, and, all, and because those feed lots of other metabolic cycles and physiological, all sorts of things could happen. Um, the The challenge with artificial light at night and its impacts on human health has been and remains really how do you disentangle what's happening outside with what's happening inside? So yes, there's lots of evidence for impacts on. So you only have to get on a plane or stay up late under a light to know that this messes with your with your cycles quite quickly. Um, so there's lots of evidence for that. There's there's quite a lot of evidence for impacts of artificial lighting around cancer risks and around um, ageing issues and some of the chronic issues and connections through to obesity and things like that. The the challenge in in the world in which I operate, which is very much about outdoor artificial lighting, is how much does that matter in driving those responses? Um, Given that for most of us, most of our... Exposure to artificial lighting is what happens indoors. Um, although, you know, depending in many cities, then much of your nighttime light experience and how dark your your rooms are and so forth is driven by what's happening outside uh, and incursions of light outside. So that's, that's if we're... I, I think we're a way off yet. There's lots of circumstantial evidence that you can start to correlate... External lighting outdoor lighting with levels of cancer and uh, some cancers and so forth um, but it's not definitive at this point and mechanistically it's quite challenging to to tease those things apart
0: well let's let's talk about specific impacts on uh, a few different taxa of note um, one one of those is is plants uh, so plants obviously have a, an intimate relationship with light and Light, light pollution can affect plants. So so how, how are plants affected maybe both in urban and in more rural areas that are affected by uh, sky glow and, and direct sources of light?
2: I think the first thing to say there is one of the remarkable things has been how little work has actually been done on the impacts of artificial lighting on plants. But those studies that have been done, so that the clearly the most important Drivers here are what's happening to uh, the sense, the the timing systems. So your phytochromes and your cryptochromes, and and the responses of those. And though there are phenological effects, so evidence that le- trees are leafing out earlier in the year than they otherwise would do, and flowering effects, um, so the timing of flowering, um, the timing of um, seed set and all those things seem to be at least in some species very sensitive to to um artificial light at night
0: and and so these effects that you're just talking about are coming mostly from direct effects of of artificial lighting or are they also coming from sky glow
2: I think though those are direct effects what sky glow could might be doing in this context I don't think we really understand at this point
1: um Maybe we'll briefly turn to animals and talk about um, the known effects. And, I mean, I I think we want to ask you in a minute about a a paper that you've just had had out in Nature, Ecology, and Evolution, um, which is a really nice summary of what we know. What, for animals, do we have the strongest evidence? I mean, what are the sorts of behaviors or traits that we know to be impacted? Is it migration, space use, foraging behavior, predator-prey interactions? What are the types of things we're seeing?
2: Uh, we're seeing all those things, but uh, I mean, clearly, very strong things around around melatonin cycles. I mean, lots of evidence there, um, and hence circadian rhythms, um, and that's that's important because physiology is not separate from ecology. That's driving a lot of other things that we'd call more ecological. Um, lots of things around timings of behaviour, both daily and seasonally, so um, activity times, foraging times, those sorts of things, um, and growing evidence around movement, bigger-scale movements, um, migratory patterns. and, and so. Those are probably the, the big three areas um, in which the, the evidence has really uh, firmed up a lot um, in recent times. And, and I think what's critical here is that um, if you'd asked this question 10 years ago, people would probably predominantly have been talking about seabirds flying into lighthouses or young turtles walking the wrong way off beaches. Um, and here we're showing that the evidence uh, uh, in recent times really just underlining just that this is pervasive. This is not, th- th- these aren't oddities of the biological world that are influenced by these things this is This is really quite systemic.
0: I wanted to ask another another biological question you alluded to this earlier about uh, evolutionary effects of of light pollution. so um do we have evidence that that populations are evolving different sensitivities to light in response to these increases in sky glow and and direct direct light
2: there's There's bits of evidence which are very tantalizing um, I guess. We're almost in the situation where we were maybe 10 years ago with much around evolutionary pressures in urbanised systems and where our organisms operating in in more urbanised settings actually in some sense evolutionarily different. Have they adapted to those? Um, and people have looked at lots of pressures in that regard and lighting hasn't received a lot of attention, but uh, there's a, uh, um, a group who've looked at... Uh, the response of the flight to light behavior of of, of a species of moth, for example, I like I said actually is that different in the rural landscape or in the um, in the urban landscape? And yes, there is seems to be some evidence that that response is muted in uh, uh, more in an urban setting than in a rural one. But uh, it's, there's so much more work to be done in the space. So you know, I think we're just at the beginnings, real beginnings of understanding what those evolutionary Uh, responses might be
0: yeah you could imagine maybe leveraging some of the you know typical model systems to to look at evolved responses to changes in light cycle and light quality like you know artificial selection and drosophila populations is anybody doing things like that
2: i I think yes i think you could leverage off model systems there's there's lots and lots of things you can do and at heart i think the really interesting question is we've got clearly a very strong selective pressure here, but we've also got some really deep-rooted traits. So what's the outcome of these? Are these things really hard to shift? Which would be very troubling, because that would mean that artificial lighting was an even bigger challenge than we thought it was. Um, Or actually, are organisms, do they adapt relatively readily to to shifts in light? Uh, and that, that's an open question at
0: this point. So so let me change our, our level of focus just a little bit. Um, I, I feel like most of this conversation has been about individual species or individuals. Um, but individuals, of course, are collected together into larger groups, communities, ecosystems. If you look at these larger levels of organization, do you see systematic effects on the way communities operate?
2: Uh, I think there everything hangs on the word systematic so i guess the 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 starting point here was a lot you know are does species richness change to some of the kind of broad kind of classical community metrics of you know the scale if you like of and the answer seems to be there that that's actually quite heterogeneous and there's 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 little strong systematic things happening if you start probing into what's happening around issues around composition, that's a whole lot different issue um, because if you've got organisms responding in different ways to shifting light because you're, you're diurnal, you're nocturnal, you're crepuscular, whatever, um, then um, you, you would expect to see shifts in community composition and abundance structures and those things at, at that level. And I think there's a lot going on in there that we're only again just beginning to to unpick at this point
0: so so the idea is that the communities are changing but there's no predictable pattern necessarily or, or no no common shift uh across communities
2: I, I i that's where i think we stand at the moment that's what i would conclude at, at the moment so one organism you know changes the timing of its feeding, or a plant changes the timing of its leafing out, and that then has consequences for the things that feed on that, and for the things that feed on that, and the and the um, the interactions all the way up. And we've we've shown some of that stuff in very simple food web systems, where you the the, the a lot of the outcome is not about. Um, the species itself. It's about the interactions and how its predator is interacting and maybe actually the interaction is a 3rd had one because it's the way that predator is then interacting with something else and what happens to its abundance and then how does it impact you. And if that's true in these simple systems, I suspect it's, it's even more so in, in more complex ones. So lots of cascading effects would be predicted.
0: You could almost imagine a sort of a keystone species idea for for light pollution right like sort of key key species that are affected by light that then have pervasive effects on the rest of the community
2: yeah absolutely yes, and they needn't be the most abundant, the most common ones they um, they could fulfill very different roles.
1: sticking sort of with the level of of uh community effects um and maybe turning more into the now we talked about what it is let's talk about maybe what what we can do what people are doing about it um in a paper this year in the journal animal conservation um jk garrett was the lead author on this one you were working on global patterns of light pollution in what you call key to biodiversity areas so first tell us what a key biodiversity area is and then maybe uh let us know about what uh ecologically, that, that means.
2: So these are typically areas which have species which occur nowhere else, um, or or at least don't occur anywhere else in any abundance. So these are, if you identify these around the world, then they're, if, in terms of conserving biodiversity, these are disproportionately significant areas. And so what's happening to them, and they, they're typically quite small, um, so what's happening to them and the pressures that are exerted upon them is actually quite significant in terms of how we address issues of biodiversity loss and decline.
0: You have a what to me is an amazing description of, of the problem in, in this paper. You say, we show that the world's key biodiversity areas, in those key biodiversity areas, less than a fifth have completely pristine nighttime skies about two thirds lie entirely under artificial bright skies, and only about one third were completely free of skies polluted to the zenith i mean yikes right that that sounds really bad so uh how how bad is it and you know
2: what 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 are the effects Yes, it is really bad. I think there are a couple of qualifiers in there um one is that of course this this is often a matter of contraction of those species into particular small areas and that's going to tend to occur differentially in some parts of the world where pressures are of of are, are more intense so there's and also the recognition of key biodiversity areas is uh, has has some foci around the world around europe and some other um developed areas so um so there is a, a qualifier in there but nonetheless i mean the stats are quite uh, are quite scary um the thing to remember here is that that, that l- level of light incursion into those areas. We're talking here about sky glow, so that's not direct emissions. We're not saying that these things are full of streetlights or floodlights or whatever. Um, but because they're small areas, then the, le- the ease with which lighting incursion occurs from outside is really quite significant.
1: Well, so what are the, the prospects for light growth in these areas I mean, in the next 10 years, with the extent being what it is, um, what what are they going to look like 10 years from now?
2: I think there's no doubt that we're going to see globally, we're set on a a continued course of the global erosion of dark areas, of naturally dark areas. They're going to get smaller. They're going to get more fragmented. Uh, If you look at the projections for... The extension of the road networks, for example, we've been talking very much about static lighting, but I, I'm also very concerned about uh, about mobile lighting and vehicles and um, the the potential for pulsed lighting, which is essentially what you would get from passing vehicles, actually to be a really significant pressure as well. Uh, then you're you're going to see just this continued fragmentation, this continued loss of um, the. Cont- the increase in lighting barriers, if you like, sets of lights which challenge organisms, which avoid lights from moving one area to another, um, that's going to expand particularly in uh, in more tropical areas. It's going to progressively get whiter as as uh, either areas upgrade their lighting, upgrade inverted commas here, from narrower spectrum to broad spectrum, or they're starting to put lighting into new places and so they go with broad white lighting from the outset. Um, we're, we're, we're on a, a, a deeply troubling trajectory.
0: So, so what's your sense for uh, whether governments at different levels from you know, local to, to national, how many of them grasp that this is a problem and what, if anything, are they, are they doing about it?
2: I find it remarkable how little society, including ecologists, think about artificial lighting, and actually think about lighting generally. Actually, um, I, I've seldom given talks about this even in front of a um, a, a community of ecologists without somebody saying, "Oh, i would never <laughs> thought about wow. light." And yet we say that, you know, light and temperature are, are, you know, the fundamentals organising principles, if you like, of biology. Um, And yet we don't pay a lot of attention to light. Nighttime lighting is is an odd kind of out of sight, out of mind thing. It's, you know, why do we run lighting systems throughout the night when actually most human activity stops? We could... um, one of the things I think one has to recognise here is that historically um, quite a lot of lighting systems were put in because they were able to take the offload, the, the excess energy production, electricity production um, that was available. So you would, you, know, you could soak it up with lighting and it wasn't costing you anything because you were just producing it anyway and demand was low. And, and I think that captures this thing that we we just haven't really thought about constraining our lighting it's um, the same thing is true with um, there's very little evidence that um, artificial lighting reduces levels of crime or reduces vehicle accidents Um, so there's evidence for example that uh, people drive faster in areas which are better lit (laughs) <laughs> so, well, uh, there's, so, so there's, do you
0: think this reflects something deep about you know the human psychology of just being scared of the dark right absolutely
2: like we absolutely it's the, the fear and, of the unknown and you can and you can and it's been hard to be accused of overlighting,
0: yeah. right
2: so right. you could always say it's well always
0: underlighting it, is the problem yeah
2: you could always be you could always worry about you know if someone got if there was you know somebody got mugged or there was an accident or you could always worry about being accused of not having put enough lighting in there you were never particularly worried about having put too much in there
0: yeah yeah so so are there governments that have taken this seriously and actually you know tried to institute some sort of change where they're you know again using this word systematically dimming dimming the lighting and
2: and uh, do, doing the right thing. There, there are areas that are have uh, uh, lots of scales. So that at smaller scales, there are areas which are um, towns who who are trying to move back towards amber lighting um, because of its reduced environmental uh, footprint. There are areas which are dimming the lighting or switching off motorway lights in the, in the middle of the night. There's sorts of things going on. Um, I think there'd been an anticipation that that would, particularly after the, the financial crisis, um, or the last financial crisis. Um, that, <laughs> Not that, the oncoming one. That, that that would be much more widespread than in reality. Um, and uh, I mean, was circ- circling back to where, where we began some of this, um, there's, uh, there, was, there was a rebound effect with the introduction of, of LEDs into lighting systems. Um, so it had been anticipated that sort of almost the great hope of the LED, LED technology and the LED revolution was that you would be able to bring down the cost of your lighting systems, and particularly public lighting systems, because the, the technology was cheaper and you would make some efficiency savings and you bring the whole cost down. Um, and what actually seems to happen is people just bought more lighting so um that we didn't see the savings being cashed in as it were and probably because you had your lighting budget and if you didn't spend your lighting budget it might go somewhere else so why wouldn't you spend right, your lighting department budget?
0: department get it um, <laughs> yeah
2: and and so um we've we've not seen the steps taken that and, and the opportunities taken that were undoubtedly available
1: What sorts of advice would you have for individuals and is there, you know, some sort of excitement to be had that your influence might be more obvious than some of the other problems, anthropogenic problems that we know we have?
2: Well, I'd I'd first point out kind of a, a broader issue, which is that if you think about most environmental pressures, they are to varying degrees expensive to solve a lot of the issues around chemical pollutants or around climate change and CO2 reductions, these are, at least even if you can see longer-term savings, in the immediate term are actually expensive things to do. What's interesting about light pollution is actually we could solve this and save money.
1: (laughs) That's a rare (laughs) win-win. That's a win-win, which is quite... People talk (laughs) a lot about win-wins in conservation,
2: (laughs) but it's unusual (laughs) to have such an easy one in a sense. So people can do... People do do lots of things locally, so you can you, know, you can resist the tempt. I, I don't know. Again, I don't know what it's like in the U.S., but certainly lots of uh, of gardens, domestic gardens around um, around the U.K. People like to put little lights down their drives, and particularly if they're particularly if they're solar driven now because they don't you know they don't cost anything. It's you know, the, the and all those little steps are just adding to the overall um light burden, the nighttime light burden, to to little gain really. Um and so I think individuals can do all those sorts of things. You can you can reduce the light emissions that are coming out of your house because actually you don't pull draw the blinds and all those sorts of things. Uh, and and being aware of those things. And then I think there's the the broader societal community things where actually there are there are basically five things that you can do overall. You can retain your dark spaces, um, first of all, um, and you can create new ones, if you like, by reduce, removing lighting. There's not been much sign of that happening, but we could do that actually in lots of places with very little societal impact whatsoever. So we, we could... You can reduce the trespass of lighting. So you can make sure that for any given light it's actually just going where you want it and nowhere else. And we, we're terrible at that, actually. You know, ju- just constraining the light. I need a light down this, this area and I'm not going to light anywhere else. And often the baffles and things involved with your lighting to ensure that are really simple. I mean, these are not complex things to do. You can change the timing of the lighting. So you know, why, why do we have lots of lights on? Both both domestically and and in public and business lighting what what there's we could switch off lots of lighting through many hours of the day of the night with no loss whatsoever so you know, we, we can keep the spectra we can sp- keep the spectrum narrow um, those are those are all to varying degrees things you can do relatively easily and you can do them on different scales um, I, I think what 's driving some interesting behavior at the moment is actually public pushback. So, there have been cases where towns, cities have been wanting to introduce really quite stark, intense, white, surgical white street lighting and in some cases they've started to do it and the, and there's been public outcry and saying this is just unacceptable this this is, <laughs> this is destroying my life <laughs> this is destroying my my experience of the you know, it's, um and there's been and and in some cases there've been decisions have had to be made to reverse those things so uh
0: your your comment about the win win of you know cutting down on light pollution and and saving money uh really resonates but, but what do you say to, you know, just sort of getting back to this idea of weighing different anthropogenic threats and different anthropogenic problems, what, what do you say to the skeptic who says, you know, yeah, I get it. I get it. Light pollution is a big deal. But, you know, from a climate change perspective, it's just not as important as, you know, CO2 warming the Earth's surface or acidifying the oceans or, you know, oil spills or chemical pollutants. Uh, you know if you have to make choices about how to allocate your your time and attention what, what do you say to those skeptics about
2: about light pollution? I think first of all that this is we need to start considering this as a systemic problem I think it's it 's still in many people 's minds the the oddities that we're back, we're back to, you know, the seabirds flying into lighthouses and the turtles and so forth. It's it's still I think in much public conception it's an oddity rather than a systemic problem. So I don't think it's being thought about in this quite the terms that you're framing it in of here's something that we need to think about alongside climate change um, ocean pacific and those kind of really systemic problems but i think it is so i think that's the first thing we need to push is that actually it's thought just about understand the terms. magnitude of the problem yeah absolutely and the pervasiveness of it um i think there's then there's the issue of how these things are actually interacting with one another because they're not operating in isolation. Some of the estimates for uh, leafing out times for trees and how they're influenced by lighting, we're talking, you know, maybe a couple of weeks. You know, we're, we're, we're talking about scales of influence that are not dissimilar to the things that we worry about with climate change. And all the knock on consequences of species getting out of synchrony with one another and all those things and there are there are interactions between those things so you know your lighting system it's not contributing the vast bulk of co2 emissions but it's a big component it's a it's a significant component of that so it's it's one that we should be paying attention to um, and so i i don't think I don't think in these arenas it really is an either or thing you know there are and there are some easy wins here and actually don't we need some easy wins in this environmental <laughs> crisis yeah i'm, I'm yeah. most convinced yeah. by that that's we a, need we need a, a win a
1: would, would be nice huh well that you know now we have to ask what is the new frontier in in your lab as regards light pollution or macroecology or what's what's your next frontier
2: so we're really trying to push this whole issue of how how colors are changing how spectra are changing um, and where are they changing and how fast and so so that big macro if you like if if you like sort of the macro ecology of light pollution like there's those those big scale processes but the at the same time that one of the gaps in this this whole field really has been something of a mismatch between the the, the world you see at night so the classic you know, we've all seen the, uh, the get repeated endlessly especially if you go to talks about light pollution is the the world at night yep, is the of is the classic <laughs> opening slide yeah um, and and but the resolution of those maps of course is completely different from the resolution at which organisms are actually operating and so how do we start to draw that line so how how can we get what what are those Big scale data actually tell us about what's happening locally, and and how do we understand those things? And are there can we can we start to link models of lighting on quite fine scales with those big scale data, and so we can start to draw those connections. Um, that's 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 what's exciting me at the moment. Is if essentially a, a, if a downscaling or an upscaling issue, depending upon which way you think about it.
0: I've been working on very similar problems with respect to temperature and thinking about, you know, climate change and temperature effects, but at, at the scale of, you know, millimeters to a few meters. So just right, right around the microclimate of the organism. So I think that's really fascinating. Um, well, thanks, Kevin. This has been a really great conversation. We just wanted to ask at the very end, um, is there anything that we didn't talk about or anything else you'd like to say that we haven't, haven't covered?
2: I, I think I'd want to just, just go back. Cause I, I, I I'm not sure that we we kind of really nailed it is this is this notion of the pervasiveness of of these pressures. And I think that's something which really that message needs to be much more widely understood. That that artificial lighting and the impacts of artificial lighting are are not about oddities. They're not about I mean, of course they have implications for all sorts of peculiar bits of biology. But actually, we, we are, are living in, in a world which is very, very strongly structured now in most places by artificial lighting. And, and that if we go back to that notion that, that light and temperature are fundamental structures of biology, then... We really, are, we really are messing with the roots, if you like, of, of the environment of a very high proportion of life. And we really should worry about that much, much more than we have done so historically.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. You play a huge role in sustaining the show financially, and if you want to support great science communication like Big Biology, make a monthly donation through our Patreon page at patreon.com bigbio. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org.
1: And please tell your friends and colleagues about us. I've learned about many of my favorite podcasts through recommendations. We hope you'll recommend Big Biology this week, and maybe go to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating or review there, too.
0: On the next episode, we talk with Cassandra Extivore, a developmental biologist at Harvard who studies how the regulation of particular genes in early life produces major differences among insects and other animals.
1: So that is the question that got me into studying the germline in the first place. There might be competition between cells to be able to join that germ lineage. And so what I did was working in fruit flies because we can manipulate their genes really easily. I made embryos whose germ whose potential future germ cells had different genomes. And I asked whether having d- different genomes gave them more or less chances, basically, of making it into the germline. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing this episode. Big Bio interns Ajinkia Dehake, Dana Baxter, Jordan Greer, and Ruth Dimry manage our social media accounts and help us produce the show. And as always, Steve Lane manages the website.
0: Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support.
1: Music on the episode is from Pottington Bear.